Welcome to Conversations on Wealth. This podcast is where the wealth industry experts discuss issues critical to family wealth planning. Join co-hosts Todd Angatavinich of Ernst & Young and Daniel Hoffey of Bloomberg Tax as they explore a range of topics from estate planning and taxes to governance and family dynamics to help wealth planning professionals guide their clients to the best solutions. Hello, everybody. Daniel Hoffey and Todd Angatavinich here and excited to bring you another episode of Conversations on Wealth. Today, we will discuss cutting-edge techniques for planning with closely-held businesses using pass-throughs and trusts. Given that income tax planning has become nearly as important as transfer tax planning for wealth planning professionals, and that the two tax regimes are more inseparable than ever following the 2017 Tax Act, this topic is always a welcome and timely one and simply cannot be discussed enough. Without further ado, I pass it over to Todd to introduce our guest on this episode of C-Corporations, S-Corporations, Partnerships, and Limited Liability Companies, planning opportunities, and special considerations. Thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Stacy Eastland, uh, who is going to be our guest today. Uh, Stacy uh, is uh, well-known to many of the listeners. Um, he is a manager, managing director at Goldman Sachs in the Investment Management Division, Family Office Services. Um, um, Stacy has had uh, really a storied career, if you will, uh, in connection with a lot of the estate planning structures that are commonplace to us today. Um, uh, but Stacy was in the mix with these probably 30 years ago or so, or perhaps more. Um, and uh, so without further ado, uh, welcome, Stacy. We're very happy to have you today. Well, thank you very much, Todd. I appreciate that. And um, looking forward to our conversation. Well, thanks so much. Um, so Stacy was uh, kind enough to send us uh, his outline uh, that covers a lot more than we're going to be covering today. But we're going to give you sort of the highlights and cover about uh, you know, seven, eight, nine uh, different topics out of his uh, outline that cover a lot of the sort of, I guess, uh, you know, some of his favorite cutting-edge techniques uh, in connection with various different entities. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, C-corporations, preferred freezes, uh, BDOT transactions, uh, and a, a lot more. Uh, so, so Stacy, um, maybe you can sort of uh, uh, give us an introduction on some planning with C corporations uh, in order to address the 212 deduction. Thanks, Todd. Uh, as many of the listeners know, with the Tax Act that came in in uh, 2018, uh, investment management fees and other expenses that used to be deductible under Section 212 of the Internal Revenue Code, uh, they'll no longer be deductible, uh, at least until uh, 2026, when the uh, many of the aspects of the Tax Act, or TCJA, uh, uh, are no longer applicable. So many clients, particularly wealthy clients, have significant investment management fees. I guess since about 2000, uh, the trend was to get away from what some people call the brokerage model of uh, investment advisors charging commissions uh, because the thinking was that that sometimes produces a conflict of interest where the investment advisor uh, makes money by suggesting sales and, and uh, to take away 
that incentive. Many investment banking houses, including ours, went to a model where we charge investment management fees. The Labor Department, in fact, said that is the way to go. Well, that's one part of the federal government. Unfortunately, another part of the federal government, of course, is, is the Treasury Department. And, and so the tax policy is almost contrary to what the Labor Department says is best practices because you can deduct commissions and fees associated with mutual funds as what I call top-of-the-line uh, deductions. But investment management fees, where an investment manager would charge a fee uh, for investing the funds and, and uh, that they have under management, that's no longer deductible. And of course, other Section 212 expenses include attorney's fees, accounting fees, et cetera. So, and we explored the idea I'm about ready to talk about uh, for, I guess, since 2000, uh, because many of our clients were in the AMT and they could not deduct these investment management fees. So, in short, the idea is, what if a family had an investment-limited partnership or maybe several limited partnerships in different asset classes? And the family, uh, in, to encourage uh, an investment manager, uh, would form a partnership giving a certain percentage of the profits interest, just say 10 to 20% of the profits interest, not necessarily to the investment manager, but to a C corporation. And what the C corporation, or the family office, if you will, would offer for that 10 to 20% profits interest is that they would manage the assets of the investment partnership. And in managing the assets of the investment partnership, they would agree to pay at the corporate level all of the investment management fees, any accounting help that they needed, any legal help that they needed, and the limited partnership would pay none of those expenses. It would only be paid at the C corporation level. And the hope for result is that the owners of the limited partnership, other than the family office, would not pay any taxes, obviously, on the profits that are allocated to the C corporation that, that the family office has as a structure. And the family office then could deduct the investment management fees that it has with outside vendors, could deduct any salary or bonus arrangements that it has with key employees. And so in that fashion, there would not there, there would be a trade or business expense, and in that fashion, uh, indirectly, the family is getting the benefit of being able to deduct and thus have a partial subsidization under the Internal Revenue Code of those expenses. Now, it's a very fact-specific uh, arrangement whether or not it will work. Uh, the, there, I'm going to just list some of the key factors. Uh, in order for the technique to be successful, the family office entity must be treated as a separate person from the investment limited partnership, and it must be conducting a trader business in which it is ordinary and necessary to incur those fees. To be treated 
as engaging in a trader business, the family office entity services must be provided with continuity and regularity, and the entity's primary purpose must be to generate income or profit. Now, there are several factors that are important in achieving a favorable outcome from a fact finder. And we're starting to get, we're having it generated now by some case law. The lender management case is out there that's very favorable to the taxpayer and not so favorable. It wasn't a court decision, but there's a lot of information gleaned from the Hellman v. Commissioner case, which is settled very favorably from the IRS's point of view in November 2018. But here are the factors. The family office entity must have the obligation to pay those fees and other expenses. The family office entity must have income against which to take those deductions. The family office entity should have some key employees that are well-versed in this field. The family office entity should be beneficially owned by different owners than the beneficial owners of the investment capital. Now, if you're going to be very conservative, the rule of thumb has been by a lot of institutions that the relative overlap should be less than 20% of the profits in capital. And so and, and maybe one way of doing this for those clients that still have available a lot of exemption is to create new trusts that are not grantor trusts. And the, the capital that comes from or the organization of the family office could be largely owned by those new trusts. And it could be a very profitable enterprise. And so, and, and, and really, if we use a C corporation, there's probably not the need to pay dividends for a long period of time if, for instance, it's for uh, generations three, four, and five. And the pre-tax compounding of avoiding the double tax for, for 30 to 40 years is significant. The family office entity should enter into contracts with third-party providers and landlords in its own name. And ideally, the third-party providers are just looking to the family office to pay their fees. It should, the family office entity should be adequately capitalized or have a line of credit because not, there will be down years where there's not enough profits to pay those fees, and so it needs some staying power. So a lot of information here, Stacey, and maybe I can just pause for a little bit to sort of rewind a little bit. I think I think the point that you made at the very beginning is really key to, to sort of repeat that here, you know, by way of a profit allocation to the family office structured as a C-Corp, you are, you are essentially obtaining the equivalent of a deduction to the other partners because you're allocating the partner uh, allocating the income away from those partners. And yet at the same time, the family office structured as a C corporation, uh, as a trader business, will be able to deduct under 162 those expenses that it's incurred. Um, so it's really sort of effectively acting like a deduction for the partners of the partnership. Right. So the one other thing I wanted to mention, sometimes, uh, you know, we uh, see this kind of structure, particularly in uh, the wake of lender, sometimes as a C-corporation, sometimes not as a C-corporation. Maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the presumption uh, that a C-corporation is engaged in a trader business and how, how you sort of view that in light of uh, some of the recent cases. 
Right. What we're seeing increasingly more and more are that people are opting for the C corporation. There are about four reasons for that, as opposed to, say, a sub S corporation or a limited liability company. Uh, one point uh, that, that a lot of practitioners are making that have explored this idea is that C corporations are often considered more likely to be respected by the IRS as being engaged in a trade or business in view of certain guidance that's out there. For instance, C Revenue Ruling 78195. The profits allocated to C corporation will not be subject to the 1411 tax of 3.8%. Uh, even though you have the double tax with the 21% rate, what we're seeing is that that a lot of people, if, if distributions aren't going to be made for a long time out of the family office structure as a C corporation, you have to have to take into account pre-tax compounding. Or if you're only paying a 21% tax for several years um, and before you you kick money out and you have to pay that dividend tax. The pre-tax compounding sometimes can be very compelling. And of course, we have that 21% rate as opposed to pass-through rates that, that could exist, particularly after 2026 if, if, we do, if 190A may not be available at that time after that. Sure. If the family office is a C corporation, uh, from a legal standpoint, has been traditionally recognized as a separate person for tax purposes. And and so that's one of the keys to being able to deduct the investment advisory fees. So for those reasons, we're seeing increasingly the C corporation being used. Sure. Now, now Stacy, one other thing you had mentioned, which I think is very important, you had, you had mentioned uh, what is often referred to as the overlap test. Uh, and I think, you know, when you look at the lender management case, let's say versus the Hellman case, you know, on their surface, there were certainly a lot of parallels between those two uh, cases. Um, but, you know, the, the overlap test being basically, you know, how does the ownership of the family office compare to the ownership of the, of the partnership overall uh, is something that was quite different in the lender case where there was not much overlap between the ownership of the family office and sort of the broader ownership of the partnership, the partnerships. Uh, versus in Hellman, where there was a lot more of a sort of overlap in terms of the ownership. And this really goes to sort of the basic notion uh, in the Dagris case that, you know, you, you know, management of one's own money is not considered to be a trader business. And really one of the factors there they're looking at for trader business in the context of a profits interest is whether you're receiving compensation other than just the normal investor's return. So I think that overlap is such an important distinction between, let's say, the lender case and the Hellman case. I was wondering if you might want to comment on that a little further. Yes, I, I, and, and that, if, if you will, that could be a consideration of using this technique um, be, because if it's done more like an arm's length arrangement where you had an outside party owning the profits interest, that would be great. But, of course, for a lot of families, they want to stay in the family. I think if you have a C corporation that's owned by a new trust uh, that has beneficiaries that are substantially different than the partnership arrangement, you should be okay. Because, after all, in the lender case, the manager of the business uh, was related to the owners of the investment partnership. 
so I think you can keep it in the family. I just think it has to be different family. <laughs> Um, but that's clearly a consideration of this technique. Now, there, there are a couple other considerations that why, why it may not be for everybody uh, that I thought we ought to mention and discuss, Todd. Um, and and the, the, there are going to be many years in which the profits may not be equal to the, the expenses that are out there. Um, and so that should always be kept in mind. Also, we're now going to have additional legal and accounting costs with the arrangement so that you wouldn't have had before. So sometimes trying to get a tax deduction, you've you got to consider those additional expenses. Uh, another one, uh, if the family hasn't completed their estate planning with these investment partnerships, you got to keep in mind that the structure may require more commercially viable withdrawal provisions for the investment partnership, which could create some tension with the transfer tax goals of attaining a valuation discount. Uh, perhaps that concern could perhaps could be solved with a tiered structure, or maybe the family has already done a lot of estate planning uh, with respect to the investment partnership. So let me put it this way: what what you see in most of these investment partnerships, and in, 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 in whether it's hedge fund managers or private equity, you can get out at some point after a notice requirement. Well, what, when you're trying to get discounts for investment partnerships, generally it's very difficult to get out of the partnership, and there's some significant markability restrictions. Uh, but that, yeah. And so that so it's not for everybody, <laughs> and so you got to take right. into and account I, the, these considerations. Sure, and that was certainly one of uh, one of the factors in the lender case that there was that sort of withdrawal, right? Uh, and there is that inherent tension if you're going to look at this for estate planning purposes. Um, you, you mentioned in your materials, Stacy. There's some other sort of considerations that you need to think about if you're going down between different generations with respect to. Uh, the family office. Um, maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yes. Uh, as, as you know, Todd, in 1990, as a reaction to uh, some preferred planning that was being done where the preferred interest would have a non-cumulative dividend, and, uh, and, but the argument was made successfully many times, the preferred was sort of par of A because there'd be special put rights and call rights, et cetera. Congress came in in 1990 and said the preferred is going to have a value of zero for gift tax purposes under the subtraction method if, if you, unless there are certain requirements that are made. The preferred had to have, generally speaking, the biggest requirement, a cumulative dividend. Um, and the fact that you had put rights would not matter at all. Um, and so this arrangement where you have a profits interest going um, in in a situation where where it's going to certain family members in a disproportionate way, do we have to worry about Section 2701? Uh, if it's going to younger generation beneficiaries, yes, it's something that we should look at which would be the case if we had new trusts, generation-skipping trusts, owning the family office. But on the other hand, 
if it's a profits interest and you just have more profits than the other partners, many experts in this field feel like that that will be okay under the regulations under Section 2701. I think for this podcast, we, we just have to say it is something you need to look at and satisfy yourself that you've met one of the exceptions to Section 2701 applicability. Right. There are there are different sort of ways to look uh, look at that through different lenses. Right. So beyond the scope of today's discussion, but so, so thank you for that, Stacey. Uh, a great great first topic for us to start with. Um, maybe I can shift gears. Uh, you've got some excellent materials. Speaking of 2701, you've got some excellent materials with respect to the use of preferred partnerships in different ways, and one way in particular uh, to sort of freeze uh, the growth in a C corporation. So maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about that and some of the issues that you need to think about when you're forming these. I'll be happy to, Todd. Um, So let's assume we have a closely held C corporation. It's family held. Maybe it's in the third generation. And maybe that it could. I've seen situations where the business started in 1950, and and it's been a very profitable business. And from time to time, uh, dividends are paid, but that the double tax problem bothers the family. Uh, the family is now has multiple generations, so not everyone can work in the business and receive uh, a salary. So they're looking, and and you have a situation where we we have uh, substantial assets in the C corporation. And so in order to avoid the future double tax, what can be done? Well, one idea is that the C corporation could invest in a pass-through entity with most of its assets and drop down those assets into a partnership, but instead of receiving a pro rata interest, it receives a preferred interest. And it's a preferred interest that complies with Section 2701. That is, it's a cumulative preferred interest. Um, the, the IRS has given us some guidance under Revenue Ruling 83120 what the coupon should be. It's very important. So, Stacey, how, how would you go about uh, under the Revenue Ruling 83-120 principles uh, to, uh, to effectuate the the coupon, or how would a valuation appraiser do that? That's an excellent question. Uh, 83-120 was issued uh, in the early 1980s. In fact, it was issued, obviously, in 1983. And the, the service took the view that the primary ingredient, if you will, for determining what the coupon should be is looking to comparable preferreds. And then the service said, unlike a lot of preferred stocks that are out there, uh, in family partnerships, a preferred interest is not marketable. So there'd be an add-on. And, and uh, I think the service is probably right in, in, its, in its observations. So what can you do to get the preferred coupon um, and so that it's much lower than it otherwise would be in, in looking at comparable preferred stocks. One idea is to make it adjustable. Uh, appraisers take the view, look, if you look at adjustable mortgages in comparison to, say, 30-year fixed mortgages, 
they typically have, or at least start out having, much lower interest rates. Why? Because they're adjustable, and the inflation worry over a 30-year period is basically eliminated with an adjustable mortgage. The same principle holds, according to appraisers, if you make the preferred coupon adjustable. The second thing you can do, instead of having a, a preferred that could last for 30 years, is to make the partnership uh, where the corporation owns the preferred interest uh, with partners who uh, the, the C corporation owns the preferred interest and individuals will own the growth interest is to make it relatively short term. So, for instance, what if you had a partnership that was to last only five years? That also tends to take away the inflation worry, and that would also lend to a lower rate of return. Now, at the end of five years, obviously, the family may wish to consider having this arrangement going forward. You can always reconstitute the partnership. And so if you do those two things, maybe you can get it at a different level. And the arbitrage thing could be, let's just say it's a business that earns over time 12% between uh, capital appreciation and ordinary income. If, if I have a, like a 5% coupon, that over time that compounding going outside of the corporation, outside of the C corporation, to whoever the owner is of the growth interest could be significant. Um, and, the, and the other aspect, besides shifting income to avoid the double dividend problem, uh, it could be a wonderful estate planning device. So some of the owners of the C Corporation could, for instance, form grantor dynasty trusts, uh, and those assets that go into the dynasty trust could then go into the partnership or limited liability company for the growth interest. And so that is that is a, a technique for closely held family corporations how to shift assets over time outside of the C corporation to avoid uh, the double tax, uh, taking into account Section 2701. Now, Stacy, um, so so some great material there. Overlap of income tax efficiency with transfer tax efficiency. Sometimes. When we are looking at these things, particularly if you don't have, let's say, you know, grantor and grantor trust, uh, there are some complications or considerations, at least under the partnership tax rules, 721, and I think importantly, the disguised sale rules under 707. Could you uh, share your thoughts with us with respect to that? And then I know you have some, some other clever ideas that we'll talk about next as a way to have a substitute for that, perhaps. Yes, and 721, uh, the, what we have to worry about, like you would uh, forming a corporation, you, you have the same problem forming a partnership. If it's a disguised diversification device, you uh, then would have gain on the creation of the partnership. Usually there are ways around that, uh, that horrendous, if you will, nuclear option <laughs> that could occur forming mm -hmm. a partnership. Uh, if, if you have largely the same asset, uh, then, then it wouldn't be – or same proportional assets that are going in for the partners uh, that are contributing the assets, then it's, you're not violating what the service is worried about, trying to have a diversification. You aren't really diversifying that way. Sometimes if, if you have uh, an asset that's not a marketable asset, uh, that, that in, 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 there are certain percentage rules 
then you wouldn't have to worry about 721. Sometimes you can't fit under either one of those, and so the solution maybe is to have multiple partnerships. And the corporation would maybe, it has a single asset, it would put it into uh, you know, uh, the, the partnership or limited liability company, and the growth partners would put that same asset in. And then maybe what the C corporation has left is a non-marketable asset, and that maybe meets the percentage threshold where we don't have to worry about a deemed sale on the creation. So 721, you need to worry about it, but it's usually a solvable problem. About 707 and the reasonable payment uh, requirement, uh, and you know sometimes the the amount of the coupon payment determined, let's say under Rev Rule 83-120, that does not neatly overlap with the reasonable uh, reasonable payment safe harbor under Section 707 for disguised sale. Yes, that's true, and obviously you need to take that into account. Um, and and uh, <laughs> always have you got two eyeballs. Have one eyeball on 707. Have one eyeball on Revenue Ruling 83-120. What those requirements are. Right, and I don't think uh, I don't think either uh, were taken in consideration at the uh, drafting stage or the or the creation stage for for that ruling. Uh, these seem to be two sort of separate areas that really sort of overlap, um, um, you know, really sort of fortuitously. Right. And so you can put things in the preferred interest where it doesn't look like debt. Um, and, and, and so where it looks like a preferred interest, uh, maybe that can be helpful sometimes. Well, so th- thank, thanks for that, Stacey. Some very interesting stuff. But, you know, as we as we do mention at the end, there are a lot of different things that you have to make sure you comply with. Uh, Section 2701, obviously, getting the right coupon under Rev Rule in 83-120, and and certainly the partnership tax issues under 721, uh, and importantly, the disguised sale rules under Section 707. So that's a lot of different moving pieces. Stacey, I know you have some other ideas with respect to freezing, essentially, a a C-corporation that might be a little bit more streamlined. Uh, Could you tell us about that a little bit? Sure, happy to. Um, a very popular device, and, and uh, I think it's really gotten its genesis over the last few years because of uh, uh, it, of a private letter ruling that was issued in 2016. It's 2016-33021, and in that private letter ruling, the service said that you can organize a trust and give another trust the right to vest the taxable income of that trust. And if you give that other trust the right to vest the taxable income, and of course if you give an individual or a corporation the right to vest that taxable income, then for purposes of Section 678, that trust is disregarded. And you can have transactions between that individual withdrawal beneficiary or that corporate withdrawal beneficiary or that trust withdrawal beneficiary, uh, like sales between those two, um, and, and it's ignored because the trust doesn't pay income taxes. The deemed income tax owner is the person that has that withdrawal right. And just two seconds, you got to be careful in designing it 
it's you have to make sure that not only you have that withdrawal right with with the trust or the corporation or the individual with respect to that new trust that's created, and, but you also need to make it clear that that withdrawal right can be satisfied not only out of accounting income, but it can be satisfied of proceeds of capital gain sales or out of corpus. And if you do that, then you have a 678 trust. Some people call it the Beneficiary Deemed Owner Trust, or BDOT. And that could set up some pretty exciting things you could do with a corporation. Of course, there are exciting things you could do from trust to trust. Uh, like people have got these old trusts that are out there, or maybe uh, trusts that are created by grats that you're trying to transfer assets to a dynasty trust, form a new dynasty trust, to give you an example, and make that trust, whether it's an old perpetuities trust or a uh, trust that was on the back end of a grant, make that the withdrawal beneficiary, and you could then sell from that trust to the dynasty trust. Well, why not do that in the corporate arena? So let me give you an example. Suppose we have Bob and Betty BDOT who own Growing Inc. Well, let's just assume it has $90 million in assets. Now, it could form a trust, drop the assets down to it, but you don't have to to do this technique. Let's just say the parents of Bob and Betty have created in their will a dynasty trust, which gives Growing Inc. that a withdrawal right that I just described, where it can invest all the income of the dynasty trust into the C corporation. Also, it has other beneficiaries that are generations three, four, and five of the dynasty trust. Well, if Growing Inc. has that withdrawal power, then what you have is that the Dynasty Trust does not exist for income tax purposes. Growing Inc. has to pay all the income taxes. And more importantly, Growing Inc. could sell its assets to, say, a limited liability company that's created by the Dynasty Trust. And one way that it could sell its assets is to have a convertible note coming back that's convertible to that amount of the outstanding principal of the note of any time equal to that principal value of the note and so that you help solve valuation questions, give a lot of flexibility to growing in. And here's the neat thing about that. Over time, instead of having a relatively high dividend in compliance of revenue ruling 83120, the note could have an interest rate that complies with the AFR rules. And now we're shifting a lot more wealth downstream from the C Corporation to Growing Inc. And it could be going to a dynasty trust. It's a powerful it's idea. A very, it's a very interesting idea. Um, and, and one that, as we mentioned before, this is one that not only has a much lower hurdle than you might have in the uh, 2701 compliant preferred partnership situation, but you're also... Uh, doing this in a manner that's not subject to 2701, assuming that the debt is valid debt, and you're also doing it in a way that avoids 721 and 707. So very interesting application here, uh, Stacey, and at the same time, you're getting this into a GST-exempt dynasty trust. Right. The facts don't fit a lot of situations, but it does fit a fair number that I've seen. I'm sure you've seen, Todd. So it's something that, that should be explored in some cases. 
Well, thank you for that, Stacey. Very, very interesting. And uh, thank you for this first installment uh, of uh, the Conversations on Wealth um, podcast. And we'll continue this on a second installment. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. This has been Conversations on Wealth by Bloomberg Tax. You can find Conversations on Wealth on pro.bloombergtax.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving us a review on iTunes or reaching out to Todd at todd.angatovinich at ey.com or Daniel at dhoffy at bloombergtax.com. Until our next conversation, happy planning.